The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are yours, and we are here to worship you. Let us be reminded, God, that you have paid a great price for us to be a part of your family, and that through the blood of Christ, we can come together in unity around the gospel of truth. Today, as we go through your word, we ask that you would expose us to places where we are still holding on to untruth, where we are holding on to falsehoods. And lies, and where Satan is taking a hold of those and causing disruption and ruin in our personal lives, in our, in our homes, and here within the church. And Lord, we ask that you do a work of removal, to put those things aside, put them away from us, so that we can represent you the way that we have been called to, in truth and in love, and that we would walk in love as Christ loved. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would go forth in power through the preaching of your word now. Holy Spirit, do this work. Amen. If everyone would please have a seat. As we get into the word, I just want to let everyone know how encouraged I am by the Holy Spirit at work in this place. Uh, the elders, as you guys know, meet weekly. We study the word together, and, and we spend time in prayer. And so this morning, like, there's not a whole lot of extra work that goes into syncing everything together. But the way Seth was able to lead us in prayer and the scriptures that he took us through, the songs that we were led in by the Stazaks, and the word that has been prepared to be preached are very cohesive and I, I attribute that directly to the Holy Spirit at work, doing a preparatory work for now as we come to the Word of God. So, with that being said, this is a moment of tranquility, but we're 17 days into this new year, and has it been marked by a lot of tranquility, a lot of peace, a lot of joy? Has it been marked by just feelings of, I, I like where we're going. I like where we're going as, as a nation. I like where the economy's headed. Is this the feeling that we have? Unfortunately, it's, it's not. And, and these feelings, which are internal to us, have external manifestations, don't they? The way we feel tends to work itself out externally. And even these, these opening things, I didn't even include all of it. I know we have health problems, too, and we're, we're concerned about the pandemic, and, and the list goes on and on. But all of these things are having an impact on the way we feel right now. And they've given rise to a sense of not being in as much unity as we'd like to because they have an impact. That can be unity within the family can be definitely unity within the church as we broaden out. And we see it complete disunity as we start looking at a nation or at the world. It's like we can't find something to grasp a hold of to bring us back together right now. And these are what the feelings are doing. They're things that are happening internally, but they have an impact on our actions and our behaviors, which are manifested externally. And our individual actions have a cumulative impact on the unity or lack of unity experienced in the members of the body. And specifically, what I'm talking about is the body of Christ, the church, this local church even. If nothing was done to reform our thinking and our feelings, I would expect that our self-preserving, our, 
our fleshly tendencies, those things that we would cling to on a very base level, would actually drive us further apart if that's what we were seeking to, to be our driving force. And we'd only come together if we thought we could take something from someone else in order to feed what we think we need, which would be very uh, consumeristic. It wouldn't be the way God has called us to be as a church. And this is what's happening when we look at the world that we live in. This is what's happening when we look out and see and consider what is going on right now. This is what happens when we completely discount a transcendent truth. When we don't look that and see that the Creator, the one who made all of this and all of us, has spoken truth into the situation so we'd have something to grasp a hold of. Without considering that He came in the flesh to dwell among us and to provide reconciliation. God has done this. He has provided a transcendent truth. And as believers... We share in that. He ties us together with him by putting the Holy Spirit inside of us. We receive the Holy Spirit, and transformative power comes through living by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is driving at as we get into our text today that we're going to be pouring over together. That by being united with Christ, we're responsible to yield to that transformative work that's going to take place in our nature. And it's going to happen throughout the life that we live. It's not all at once. It's transformative. It takes place over time. And throughout the time we are walking with Christ, we walk in love as Christ loved. We walk in love as Christ loved. That's what we should be thinking about as we go before this passage today together as a church We walk in love as Christ loved. And in so doing, our actions, our speech become transformed. By putting off our old ways and putting on Christ, what is needed to happen, for this to happen? We put on love. We need more love. Necesitamos más amor. Something like that? Switching over to some Spanish? did that for a reason, because I wanted to use the word mas, which means more. That's going to be our outline, M-A-S. Motivation is what we're going to look at first, and then action, and then speech. Necesitamos mas amor in order to, to live for Christ. And as I'm going through these areas of the sermon, I'm not going to just go through them verse by verse. What you're going to see is we're going to clump together those verses that help talk about motivation. So I'm going to have those verses clumped together. And then we're going to look at action and how we are to live as Christians. And there's going to be another clumping of verses that goes together with actions. And then finally, speech. But I'd like to start out first with motivation. And as we look at motivation, we're going to be focused on the first part of verse 25, as well as verses 1 and 2 from chapter 5. And when we're thinking motivation, this is that internal working within us that that does that transformative work so that we can have actions, so that we can have speech that show love to the world. It's a spiritual working. It's an enlightenment. So what do we read first in verse 25? Therefore, having put away falsehood, therefore putting away falsehood, well, If our feelings can be corrupted, this is a good place to start. We want to put away falsehood. We want our feelings, that stuff that's inside of us, our thoughts that might be misguided, which will have a direct impact on our actions and behaviors, to be reformed. We want the harmful things about us to be put away, and we want love to be implanted in. And in order to change, that means we need a source, a higher source of truth that we might find amongst sinners. We need a higher source. And the only way we can really be motivated to change our inner self is to become exposed to that transcendent truth and then yield to it. Now, this fits in very nicely to the passage that we went through last week that Seth took us through. 
So I'm going to go there again as a church. We're going to look at verses 20 through 24, which we covered last week. But this is how we, we get transformed. We get transformed in this manner. This was covered last week, but as a, a reminder, let's take a look. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, be put, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Our source of truth is Jesus. Our source of truth is Jesus. Our motivation is to take what we think we know and compare it to our source of truth. God's word. And where a disconnect might occur, where we think we know the truth and then we compare it to the known truth of God's word, we have to then jettison that untruth, that, that, that thing that is deceitful, and say, I can no longer have a part of that. That can't be part of me anymore because I'm walking with Christ. Furthermore, we are motivated to replace that which was false with truth and embracing Christ causes our inner being and our mind to be renewed. And this has has an effect of bringing some momentum into our spiritual life. Our new self is then forced to shine through out of that old cocoon that we once had wrapped around us that didn't make us look very attractive. And we start to shine forth as Christ into the world that he's put us in. And this is done when we're strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's just made known. It's manifested in our lives. And this same line of thinking is, is further encouraged in the first two, chap- first two verses excuse me, of chapter 5. Here's what they say. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just to, Jesus, as we just looked at, is our source of truth. He's our standard. He is the one that we look to to say, how am I to be? He is the way we're supposed to be. When we don't match up, we're to, to change. We take what we know about truth and love from Jesus and his life. And we consider that and we say, this is the new life that I'm supposed to have, the life that is in Christ. Here Paul says to be imitators of God. How? By walking in love as Christ loved. Walking in love as Christ loved, which was a sacrificial love. Our motivation in the Christian life is the true Christ who loved completely by giving himself up for the church. This is our motivation. Christ gave up everything so that he could form a body. We are that body. And we are to love the way he loved, sacrificially. Now, knowing that he wants our lives to be transformed, consider how our motivation, that th- those things that are internal to us, Christ and his love, those are our motivation, work themselves out. I want you to listen and consider a quote from C.S. Lewis as he was impressing this idea upon upon his listeners. C.S. Lewis writes, Though natural likings should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering with whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, 
you will presently come to love him. Christian, do you see this happening in your life right now? Do you see that as you walk in love, as Christ loved, that you are liking more people, that you are loving more people than you did at first? Are you seeing that? This is a proof that Christ is working in you. It's a wonderful proof. He's working in your life if you're seeing this. If, however, you're struggling to see this change, I would encourage you to step out in faith and do as Paul encouraged in this text, to love sacrificially. I would encourage you to do as C.S. Lewis was encouraging his listeners, as stated, to, to purpose your mind that is internally, do something inside of you to be ready to act in love, even toward those who you prefer not to act in love towards. Then when they come across your path, or even better, you seek them out, and you show them the love of Christ, it's seen as a blessing. This, this has a, a fourfold effect. If you purpose in your mind ahead of time, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to pray for them. If I see them, I'm going to act loving towards them. I'm going to speak loving towards them. This will have a, a fourfold effect. First, they're going to be blessed, aren't they? You're going to end up growing in your appreciation of God's grace shown towards you. Third, you'll really grow in love for that other person. And fourth, over time, your ability to love is going to expand to a greater and greater amount of people, which sounds much like Jesus' charge to say, go and make disciples of all nations. It all starts with an internal change, with motivation that happens within us because of a work that's done by Christ. We're about to jump into some real specific actions that we take as Christians. You probably picked up on that even as we were doing the scripture reading. Very specific areas of what it means to walk in love as Christ loved and as sacrificial love. But listen, if, if you don't understand that you've been saved by Christ, who gave himself on the cross for you, understanding these sacrificial and these purposeful steps is going to be very dead-sounding. It's not going to be very alive. It's going to sound very wooden, very moralistic. And that's not at all what this passage is saying. These are to flow out of us as a natural change that's occurring inside of us because of the Holy Spirit transforming us. This is what will happen if we're motivated by the love of Christ. Then these practical actions, these, these changes that need to occur in our speech, which we're going to get into, they're going to come out as a blessing to others. They're going to help us serve one another and to build up the body of Christ the way we're supposed to. But this is why we had to start here with motivation. What's going on inside? What are we feeling? What are we thinking all through the book of Ephesians, you've heard Seth and Ben and Jason and myself say that this is a body book. It is for the body. And that there are very practical applications for the Christian life in Ephesians. We're getting into those now. We're going to look at these specific actions of walking in love as Christ loved. Our next section is just that, action. What kind of action do we need to take as Christians? In this section, we're going to look at verses 26, 27, and 28, and verse 31, action. The first two verses are, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Jumping right in, I've got to say we have two imperatives in the first clause of this, this first verse. The first imperative is a passive imperative. An imperative is a command. The first one is a passive imperative, which is be angry. What does that mean? 
There's a command, but it's passive. Be angry. This means we can expect to be angry from time to time. And that correlates with life, doesn't it? We're angry from time to time. The second is an active imperative. Do not sin. Do not sin. Now, this is the rub, isn't it? We all have experienced at times being angry, but how many of us have done so without allowing it to take us into an area of sinfulness? That's the challenge. These two imperatives are, are linked together. They're put side by side. We can expect that anger will be a part of our lives when we experience evil, when we witness that which God has not created to be a part of of life. And we can expect that because we're image image bearers of God, and we know that God is wrathful towards sin, that he hates sin. So as his image bearers, when we're exposed to that part of our existence, we would expect anger to also follow. This is the be angry. However, being sinful humans, we have to be aware that our response could and likely will come out in a sinful manner. Hence, the imperative, do not sin. But this isn't where we're left, is it? There's more to this verse. It says, next to it is this proverb-like statement. And hopefully you guys have heard this before, but a proverb isn't a command. It's a general truth about life. Generally speaking, it's, it's helpful for the way we're to, to live and carry out life. It's meant to show us principles. And, and this proverb isn't, like I said, not to, uh, look at it again. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay? It's a general statement. It's a principle that makes sense. But how do we take this? Do you, do you take it to mean that you cannot let the sun go down while you're angry? What happens if you get angry after the sun's already gone down? That doesn't work out too well. So it's a general principle, right? And what, what's it trying to say? It's saying that we shouldn't sit in our anger. We shouldn't stay in our anger for a long time. We shouldn't allow this to go on. It should... It should be short in duration. And I think we all know why. I mean, anger is a strong emotion. I would say even a a dominant emotion. If we're in a state of anger, it severely hampers our ability to do much else besides focus on that, that anger. It's hard to do almost anything else if we're in a state of of anger. So when we're in this, we need to treat it carefully. Because there's a warning that we're not to sin. We're to be angry, but do not sin. For sin leads to damaging relationships. We want unity in the church. We want unity in our families. We want unity across this land. We can't stay in a place of anger for long and be pursuing unity at the same time. In my aviation career, I have been and continue to be frequently reminded of the danger of becoming hypoxic or getting into a condition where my body doesn't have enough oxygen for it to function the way it's supposed to, to sustain bodily cognitive ability. So in the past, I've had to undergo a lot of training where I'm deprived of oxygen. I go hypoxic. That probably explains a lot of my abilities now. But the, the reason we, we would do this training was so that we could see what our symptoms were, how we reacted to being deprived of oxygen, so that we could go through, well, first so we could notice it, then we could notify others, like, this is happening to me, and we could go through the emergency action procedures. We could get on emergency oxygen. We could start our descent into some thicker air to try to revive that uh, proper amount of oxygen to the brain so the plane doesn't crash, to avoid injury and death. Don't you think it'd be similarly important for us to know what our symptoms might be for anger? We're told not to sin in our our anger. We want to know our symptoms. 
We can be angry, but we're not to sin. We're warned in Scripture not to stay in a state of anger for long. For this inevitably is a situation that the devil can take advantage of. That's what this verse says. So, just very easy question. Do you know when you are angry? Do you actually know when you're angry? Are you honest enough with yourself to say, I'm angry? Are you able to make that radio call like I would have to make if, if I were hypoxic? Something's going on over here. Like, I got a problem. Because if you can know that when you're angry and that you can raise your hand or tell others, like, I'm, I'm angry right now. Guess what happens? You get help. You get a brother or a sister, a husband, a spouse that comes alongside you. In my case, in flying, I, I could have someone show up on my wing and look, at, look in the cockpit and say, hey, you know, get down. You know, put on that emergency O2. So that's one question. Another one is, what do you do if someone asks, are you angry? Are you angry? What's your response? Yes, I see Daylene saying, no, we, we, we don't want to admit that we're angry. We deny it. And oftentimes, what does that do? It makes us more angry. And then we end up getting closer to that place where we're going to sin in our anger. We don't see that question as a, as a loving gesture, which it really can be a loving gesture for someone to say, are, are you angry? If they're not doing it to provoke you. Now, that, sometimes that's the case, too. I, I have siblings. I know how that worked out. But it's a loving gesture. You want people to pay attention to, to where you are and willing to stay with you until you can come out of that time of being angry. So the problem can be resolved. We need to know when we're in that, that, that area. I liken it to the Hood River Bridge. We're all familiar with the Hood River Bridge. It's not an overly long span, but when we're on it, do you have the cruise control set? Are you messing with the radio? Are you looking back and seeing what the kids are doing? No. We are focused, aren't we? We're focused for that time because we realize there could be danger here. I could hit the side or I could hit another car. When we're in a period of, of anger, you need to be aware that you're there. You need to be vigilant. Watch out that you don't get into a place where you might sin in that anger. Anger happens. It's a real reaction. But we need to make sure it, comes, it brings about a positive change in order to preserve what's good and right in God's creation. And within the church, we want to see human flourishing enhanced and, and pushed forward and to walk in love as Christ loved. If we end up going in a place that's sinful in our anger, that's a direct opposite to what we're trying to accomplish as a church. Moving ahead into the, the next verse, there's a, another action that we want to take. In verse 28... Verse 28 says, let me pick up here, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what kind of action can we dig out of this verse? Let me just say that it's nearly a universal known that it's wrong to steal from someone that's close to you. It's wrong to steal from your neighbor, okay? The further away you get, the more gray areas society tends to think, well, that, that might be okay. It's not impacting the person right next to you. Now, obviously, as Christians, we know stealing is wrong. I'm just saying generally, the further one is away from that threat, we tend to say it's okay. So to put this in perspective, like, we're okay with Robin Hood, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, okay? But we're not okay if one of our employees steals from our business, correct? Yeah, that's close. 
And we're not okay with, if our elderly loved one is being taken advantage of by a scam artist. There's so many scams out there, and we, we get pretty irate if we know that someone we love is being targeted or even has been, and their money's taken away or they've given away their sensitive data. But if we hear about a massive security breach against a government entity or some big bank, we tend not to think much of it. It just happens. It's just part of life. But let's look here at the beginning of the, the verse. Let the thief no longer steal. Or let the, the stealer no longer steal. We look at that and we say, or we should ask the question, well, what have I done? Have I been taking anything that doesn't belong to me? Is there a problem with my honesty? And potentially there is. You could be dishonest in the way you're working. You could be dishonest in taking something that doesn't belong to you. And depending on where we are in life, that's going to look differently. Maybe if you're really young, you know where the candy's kept in the house and you help yourself. It happens in our house because sometimes we find wrappers. Yeah, we find wrappers that we know we haven't given the candy, but evidence is there that it's been consumed. But it could happen at a larger scale. It could be at work. How are you doing with your hours, logging your hours at work? Are you giving an honest day's work for what you're being paid for? Asking the questions like this, I think we all would say, raise our hand and say, from time to time, guilty. And that's what I hope we see as we're looking at these examples. Not that we are overly righteous, we're, we're working on that, but that we can identify with what's being called out here. Because that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, some, such were some of you... But now, this is what we're to do in light of being called to walk with Christ. Now, let's bring this scenario into the church itself. Let's say we discover someone has really gone far. They've stolen something, so much so that there's ramifications with the authorities. They've done a criminal act. As a church, this is what we would expect would happen. They're going to pay according to what's, what they need to be held responsible for. That's just the natural outcome of, of such a criminal act. But now what do we do as a church? How do we treat that person as a brother or sister in Christ? What do we do? They've probably destroyed their ability to get a job. What do we do as an employer? If, 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 if I could employ them, what should I do? If, if you guys could put them on payroll, what would you do? As a church, we should come alongside them and encourage them to walk honestly, to trust them again. I know we probably have to put some parameters at times, but we want to see them do well. And that means as a church, we have to come alongside those who might be caught up in, in something devastating from time to time. And that could be challenging. But how else are we just to bring people in and to build them back up if we're not willing to take those challenging steps. And if we were to employ them, we'd want to give them an honest enough wage, a good enough wage, that they could then give away some of what they earned. That's what this is, text is saying as well. And it should remind us that when we're being taken care of, when God is providing us with work, He provides us with everything, that we need to be willing to give away to help those who are in need from the, the abundance of what he's given to us. This is what happens when we walk in love as Christ loved. Our lives look different. They do. Our actions become transformed by putting off our old ways and putting on the ways of Christ. Further action, though, needs to take place. And we see that if we look down our page to verse 31. In verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, this verse we're going to look at uh, here in particular, bitterness and malice. Okay, we've already dealt with anger earlier. 
And we're going to catch up to clamor and slander when we look at speech. So right now we're going to look at these actions. Like what can we do with what seems to be somewhat internal matters that we know comes forth outside of us? How can we put these away from us as Paul's encouraging? How do we put this away from us? Not bury it inside of us, but put it away from us. Starting with bitterness. This one's very subtle. Bitterness is very subtle. Very subtle. It starts small and then builds over time. Christians, like non-Christians, can experience bitterness. This isn't unique to the Christian. It's not unique to a non-Christian. Bitterness can be experienced. But that being said, I think as Christians, we might be a little bit more prone to experiencing bitterness. Just by our nature, we, we tend to want to overlook offenses. We know that we probably should not be offended easily. So resentment might build up over time because we allow this to happen. We allow it to go on, and then all of a sudden... It's happening. It's going on inside of us. Bitterness is there. And then when it manifests itself, if you've developed a bitter spirit, what comes out is like this torrent of rage. And oftentimes the person that you're directing that rage at has no idea why you're so upset. Because maybe they said one thing one thing that they probably said to you a bunch of times before, but it just added to what was already there. And that bitterness comes out. And so they're like thinking you're irrational. You're thinking you're justified because you're carrying a bigger thing around than what they think has been done. So bitterness starts small. It's subtle, but it can have devastating effects on our relationships. We can't let it remain. It can't be buried inside of us because when it does come out, it comes out in a mean way. So the the challenge with bitterness is that often you're the one, if if you're bitter, that is suffering from bitterness. The other person may not even know that it's happening. Why? Because you're not telling them. You're not telling them that you're being offended by something they're saying. You're not saying that, you're not telling them that, I, actually, I've been hurt by this. Or, you know, collectively, I'm hearing the same thing, and it's really starting to weigh on me. We're not to bury things inside of us. We're told here to, to put it away. Well, how's the best way we can put something away from us? Being honest. Speaking. Letting people know what's really going on. Force the dialogue. And I think what's going to happen if you force the dialogue is you're going to notice there's less danger of you developing bitterness in your life because it can't sit there. It can't dig into you. We talk about that root of bitterness. It can't penetrate. The key is forgiving one another as we've been forgiven in Christ. God has forgiven us in Christ. So even as, as bitterness gets worked through, that's something we have to keep very much at the forefront of our mind. The second aspect of verse 31 that we want to look at is malice. Malice. Malice is a desire to cause pain or injury or suffering. Malice doesn't sound like a very good thing for a Christian to have. Typically, Maybe a year ago, if I were preaching this passage, I would spend most of the time probably talking to the youth when I was looking at the topic of malice. Malice towards their siblings or their parents or even peers, I think would be fairly common. Lately, though, I've heard a number of adults speaking negatively about elected officials. I've been guilty of doing this. Likewise, I've heard a lot of adults talking negatively about activist groups that are present and those opposed to certain ways of life. And don't get me wrong, some discussion is very much warranted. Remember what I said earlier, 
we are striving for righteousness. And when we see unrighteousness taking place, that comes up inside of us. We start to get a little bit angry. So I'm not saying that discussion isn't warranted. Don't get me wrong there. There's a lot of misguided activism. But what I'm trying to do is provoke us to think about where our hearts are right now when it comes to this idea of malice. Have some of these ideas transitioned over to thoughts of actually wanting to do harm or cause injury or suffering? Are we entertaining malice? Clearly, the government's concerned about this right now. Now, there's this exchange between the outgoing administration and the incoming administration that's going to take place this week. Clearly, the government's concerned that malice might come forth. Because yesterday, when I checked, they're activating 25,000 National Guard members to be in Washington, D.C. to provide security. Now, to put that in perspective, when I was on active duty, the three largest Marine Corps bases I served on were Quantico, Virginia, Yuma, Arizona, and, uh, what I, uh, Quantico, and uh, Cherry Point, North Carolina. Three largest Marine Corps bases. All of those combined, less personnel than 25,000. That's a big presence. Clearly, someone is concerned about malice taking place. So, thinking of us, are we helping to put this away from the life of the church? Are we helping to put this away from the community that we've been called to live in? Or are we encouraging it? Exercise forgiveness and put malice far away. This is the, the end or the wrap-up of this middle section on action. And if you want one key takeaway from this middle section on action, I would give you identification. You have to be able to identify these things. If you can't identify them, it's hard to deal with them. So if you can't identify anger, if you can't identify malice or bitterness or any of the things we talked about, you're going to have a really hard time working through them honestly and having a positive change come about. But as we transition now to speech, I want you to remember that oftentimes what, what comes out of our mouth has a, is a direct impression of what's in our hearts. It spills right out. We're going to look at speech now. We're going to return to the latter half of verse 25 as part of this group, verse 29 and verse 31. And that's where we're going to start is since we're, we're just in 31, I want to remain there and then touch on clamor and slander. These are two areas related to speech. First, what is clamor? It's not a, a, a word I think we, we use a whole lot of. Clamor is raising a ruckus. It's causing a lot of noise, being very vocal and loud, so much so that you're trying to per, persuade others to get on board with your idea and generally speaking, it's going in a negative direction. So Paul isn't concerned about praise and worship music here and being loud and shouting praises to the Lord. It's that, that descent, those shouts of destruction and burn it down, some of the things we've been hearing throughout this last year. So let's jump in to this. How are you communicating in your home? Just jumping right in to our most intimate setting in our home. Do you find that you get louder and louder until your voice is the only voice that's being heard in your home? This is something to look at. And I would encourage us as a church to talk about how we're communicating in the home. Because if you're having shouting matches in your home, a lot of times... My guess is you're not having those shouting matches when others are around. It's probably in private. There's something going on there, something probably not good. This is where we have to say, hey, I think we're having some trouble communicating in our home. And we've gotten to a point where we're hurting each other with the way we speak. 
And that's when brothers and sisters in Christ, that's where elders can come alongside and encourage you and to see and pull apart and see what's going on. Let's be refined in this area. Let's not have clamor be part of our regular occurrences. And you could probably find other areas, but I just wanted to, to jump in and look at the home. But maybe your issue is more related to slander. Now, what's slander? Slander is talking poorly of someone, someone else, usually without them being present. Slander. You're slandering them. And this can be devastating to the love that's expressed inside of the church. If this is happening inside of a church, it can be devastating to the love. Because just imagine, if you're, if you're hearing slander, what's the immediate impact that that's going to have on, on you? Well, first, you're going to probably be stunned and then second, you're going to be silenced. Stunned and silenced, which doesn't sound like it's promoting love very well. You're much less likely to open up with this person about what's really happening in your life if you've heard them talk in a slanderous way about someone else. Because you're going to be fearful that maybe you'll be nixed. Maybe you'll be slandered against. Maybe they'll speak of you in a harmful way. It's also damaging, slander, because when we converse, and this a lot of times happens in a conversation, let's say after church we walk up and we join a conversation and then someone says something slanderously, we're kind of put back on our heels a bit because usually when you join a conversation, you want to contribute. So you might just unknowingly get caught up in carrying on with that slanderous behavior. We try to go along with the conversation. So slander has a way of catching others and pulling them into it as well. This is to be put far away from the members of the church. Small and simple phrases. So here's some practical helps. Small and simple phrases can help stop slander. Say, I, I feel, I'd feel more comfortable if we didn't talk about so-and-so without them being here. It's a small and simple phrase. Anyone could say it. I'd feel more comfortable if we didn't talk about so-and-so without them being here. It's going to have an immediate impact on that conversation. You could also say, I'm not willing to engage in that type of conversation. It's not helpful for building up the body. That's Scripture. And you're just bringing it into the conversation, and you're saying, I don't see that this is helpful. And that's going to help put slander away from here happening here in the church. And I'm not trying to say that I, I see it as a, a problem, so don't, don't hear that. But slander can be a problem, and it can be subtle, like bitterness. It can creep in, and before you know it, it can cause a lot of issues in relationships. Continuing in our look at speech and how we can walk in love as Christ loved in the way we speak, I want to return back up to verse 25, where we started. In this verse, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We looked at this first half of the verse earlier, and once we've put away falsehood, that's to have a refining effect on the way we speak. We are to speak truth with our neighbor. And I know this sounds very familiar with a, a verse we covered two weeks ago. Verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 4 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And both of these verses are primarily concerned with the way we're talking as members of the church. So the way we're talking as members. So when you think of Ephesians, a lot of times you need to think primarily of how are we supposed to behave as a church, as a body, as members. That doesn't mean that we're going to talk falsely about those outside of the church, but inside the church, we have this unique opportunity to sharpen one another, to refine each other, and to make sure we're being very truthful with the way we speak. It's our training ground. And from this place, then we go forth into the community, and 
we speak truth there as well. It carries over. It's, it's a natural carryover into our places of secular engagement. But here in the church, we need to be constantly be considering how it is we are pursuing truth in the way we speak and delivering that truth in love. And verse 29 continues this, this thread of speech talk. Verse 29 reads, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I wanted to cover this verse last in this section on speech because it has had a tremendous impact on my life personally this last month, or maybe a little bit longer. And I, I, I can't get this idea out of my head as I, as I look at this verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't it beautiful to consider that we have been given grace by God. Jesus died on the cross so that we might have salvation. And that was a gift given to us, and we call it grace. And here in this passage, Paul is saying, take what you have been given, the most beautiful gift you could have ever received, and allow your words to likewise be like God in that you give grace to others. It blows me away that we get to participate in something of this magnitude and then we're encouraged to do so. To share grace with our words and the way we speak. This really helps put corrupting talk out of the picture and into perspective. Can you have corrupting talk and grace near one another? No. They can't be there. They can't be together. So, obviously, if you're going to be speaking words that are to be heard with grace, it's not going to be corrupting. We're not even to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths. James says in in James 3.1, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And the answer is obviously no. That's the way our, our speech is to be. It's supposed to be nourishing. It's supposed to be uplifting. It's supposed to be refreshing. It's supposed to be full of grace. And I would encourage you, church, from personal experience this past month in my own home, Take a hold of this idea. Take a hold of this, this verse and this passage and see how it transforms your home. Think about it before you speak. As, does this fit the occasion? Does it build up? Is it going to be received as grace? Now listen to me for more than about two minutes. And you'll know I still have a long ways to go. But it's powerful. Something we get to partner with the Lord in, in sharing grace. Give grace with your words. Speak that which will build up and that fits the occasion. Here we have considered what this walking in love is all about in our three sections. Necesitamos más amor. Thank you for following along with my use of mas for motivation, which is what we covered first. That's what's going on inside of our hearts. And then it comes out in our action. How do we live it out? And lastly, in our speech. What do we say? How are we heard? How are we communicating? But to tie all of this together, the whole message... I want to look at one verse we haven't covered yet. It's verse 30. In verse 30, 
It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we've studied this passage today in total. We've seen all these practical aspects of what it means to be walking in love as Christ walked in love. We have this verse stuck right in the middle, verse 30. And it's really vital to tie everything together. You see, brothers and sisters, the only reason we have a faith walk is because we've been saved by Jesus. He has started the process. He started the process. You know how he started it? By putting his seal upon you, the seal of the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Something that Christ has done. It began the work. And then the work continues throughout our life until the day of redemption. That's a work that Jesus also does. He brings it to completion. He brings about the day of redemption. He starts it. He finishes it. He puts the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us as we're walking in love as Christ loved. In between those two times, as we approach our time of redemption, we do so by faith. Our actions and speech have to be transformed by putting off our old self, putting on Christ. This is how it ought to be. However, we can take excursions off of the path that the Lord has put us on. We don't necessarily walk the straight and narrow all the time. We take these excursions and we, we, spill, we speak ill of others. We harbor malice or we allow our anger to go to a place of sinfulness. We can do any number of things that are not characteristic of who we are supposed to be in Christ. And this is how we grieve the Holy Spirit. This is also how we prevent a full unity from happening here within the church and the body of Christ. These are two aspects of the Christian walk that we should be very concerned about, brothers and sisters. Grieving the Holy Spirit and preventing full unity from occurring in the, in the body. They should very much have our attention. To finish up, if you remember in the beginning, I asked some, some questions, some obvious questions in the beginning of the sermon that were meant to show that outside of the church, the institutions that have been developed to promote and to hold together and to carry us through in a time of flourishing, they're struggling to provide. They're not doing what they were designed to do they're showing corruption. Our peace and our tranquility are not going to be found in those institutions. They're not going to be found in the world that's being corrupted more and more by Satan and by the demons that he's given reign over this, over this world. That's not where our peace and tranquility comes from. Not in the chaos of this sinful world. But that doesn't mean as a church we go right along with it. We can't. We're not supposed to. We are supposed to be that outpost of heaven. Made up of believers where we have one foot firmly planted in the kingdom of heaven. And one foot in the earth where we live. And we look forward to our day of redemption. And as we walk towards that day, as we walk in the love of Christ, we share truth. We, we are refined by the Holy Spirit, helping us put away our old self. And this has an impact on this world. And this world desperately needs that. It needs us to be the ones that share the truth of the gospel. The gospel that changed us. The work of Christ that allowed all of this that we've talked about to even be possible. Jesus has commanded that we make disciples 
of people, of every nation. So we don't get a hole up. We are definitely have to, have to go out into the world. And as we go, we do so walking as Christ walked in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for sealing us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, apart from the work that you do through the guiding of your Spirit, we would have nothing. Lord, as, as a man before the congregation today, I know that there would be nothing of worth provided to the church apart from you doing a work. So Holy Spirit, that's my prayer now, that anything that was of use to this congregation, to anyone who was able to hear this message today, that you would take that and impress it upon them to be a refining work for your glory. Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord, so that we can walk in love as Christ loved. We need you so that we can be sacrificial in our giving. It costs. We pray that you would continue to fill us up so that we would have an abundance to give. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.